0: Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers.
1: This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support
0: and colleagues working in related professions.
1: We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues
0: with a focus at the local,
1: national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan. And this is the first of two episodes produced for Human Rights Day. With me today is the chair of BASWA's Policy, Ethics and Human Rights Committee, Martin Sexton. And we're going to be discussing the application of human rights to everyday social work. Martin, how are you doing?
0: I'm good, thank you, Andy. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. I'm good, thank you. Yes, I'm good. I'm good. I'm in a fairly grey Belfast. It's not raining, but... Just about not raining.
0: How about you? Yeah, it's pretty grey here in, in, in Manchester as well. It's been been tipping it down most of the morning, but, but there's a little white cloud on the, uh, on the on the the weather map now. So, um, so I'm hoping for a little, little bit of sunshine.
1: Good. I believe we kind of get it roughly the same where we are and where you are, yeah. So, Martin, we're going to be discussing human rights today. Uh, human rights is a pretty mammoth topic for us to broach, and there are many, many angles that we can explore. But could you start us off, perhaps, by talking about what we mean by human rights? Where they come from? Why they matter?
0: Sure. Yeah, um, I did a little bit of research for for this uh, for this podcast, and obviously, there's lots, lots, and lots of stuff written on human rights um, and down the years. But the uh, the definition that I that most work for me was one I actually found on Wikipedia. Um, but I, I, I think it makes sense It's it, because it captures all of the different elements that, that go into what human rights are about. So the Wikipedia definition says, human rights are moral principles or norms that describe certain standards of human behaviour and that are regularly protected in municipal and international law. They are commonly understood as inalienable fundamental rights to which a person is inherently entitled simply because he or she is a human being. So I think that that captures all of the the, 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 the relevant elements for me, that, that, that there are fundamental moral principles, fundamental standards that apply to everyone, that they have an impact on behaviour, that they, they set out things that we should be doing and things that we should not be doing, and they're used to as the basis for, for, for laws, for legislation, for standards... And and so they're the, they're they're act, they're active. they they're, they're you can claim them. You can use them in in your dealings with other people and with agencies. And you can point to them and say this this shows this shows you how you should be treating me. Thanks. And that
1: point around the inalienability of human rights—that's that's writ large throughout human rights um, language. And it, it's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, mm-hmm. which is produced by the UN. And we're going to speak about that in a wee bit more detail shortly. But when we consider the inalienable nature of human rights, it's something I find really interesting. And it's difficult to pin down why some rights are considered inalienable. It's something that up until now I've always taken for granted. You know, we, we know that we have human rights. Um, but when, when I was preparing, I was doing a lot of reading, as you were, and I came across various different views. You know, you can root the inalienability of certain rights in different moral or religious frameworks, but these won't be universally shared. Uh, you can take the view that the determination of human rights, it's essentially a social construct. So that basically human rights are a collectively agreed set of principles. And so the creation of rights is essentially a political choice. And that means that rights can change. Rights can New rights can be agreed. There could theoretically be a rollback mm-hmm. in terms of what we actually hold to be human rights. Yep. But there's another approach. Um, and I'm certainly not suggesting that this synopsis is, um, is uh, exhaustive, far from it. But hmm. this is one that actually sparked memories of my studies back in political philosophy when I was an undergraduate. Um, and it's a view purported by the philosopher John Rawls. And I'm familiar with Rawls in the context of distributive justice and economic justice issues. And um, he has a really interesting thought experiment um, and it's called the Veal of Ignorance. Mm. So the way this works is if... Under this uh, this theory, if people were placed under fair conditions and they were asked about the terms of cooperation that free and equal peoples or countries would agree to. Now this, this uh, thought experiment is actually, he works it out in the context of international relations. So if people were placed in fair conditions and were asked about the terms of cooperation that free and equal peoples or countries would agree to. And they are imagined to be choosing rationally in light of the fundamental interests of their country. And they're imagined to be reasonable in seeking to find and respect fair terms of cooperation. Fundamentally, they're also considered to be impartial because they're behind this veil of ignorance that I mentioned. So they lack information about the country they represent. They don't know its size. They don't know its wealth. They don't know its power. They don't know their own social status. Under those circumstances, Rawls suggests these representatives will unanimously choose the same basic human rights for everyone. And the list of rights that Rawls advocates, it's very limited and I don't stand over that. Mm. But the process of what we would agree to if we were to make decisions without the knowledge of our status or our ethnicity or earning potential or nationality and so on, it's a really interesting leveler in terms of determining the rights we would want to mm. ascribe to ourselves. And I thought that yeah. was
0: helpful, kind of a helpful
1: illustration to bring forward. Any thoughts?
0: Yeah, I, I I agree. It's a really it's a really good example. Obviously, there's there's almost as much literature on John Rawls as there is on human rights. You know, his ideas have proved very fruitful and, and and provocative. But the idea the idea there of reciprocity, the idea of of of, of looking at yourself as a one person among many, or as one nation among many, um, and being possibly being on the receiving end, if we can put it like that, of certain forms of treatment, instead of thinking in terms of what do I want to do, what am I going to try and achieve, um, thinking that other people might have their own plans or our nations might have their own objectives that you could get caught up in, and then what would be a fair way of, of dealing with that situation. And I think that that's, obviously, the, the, the drafters of the UN declaration didn't go through a, a, as kind of formal and rigorous a philosophical process as that. But those were the kinds of ideas that were, that were motivating them, I think. They were looking for resources, moral resources throughout human society that, that had some... Basic level of acceptability right across society, and of course, this was in the aftermath of, of one of the worst um, episodes that the world's ever experienced, and not not just not just war and, and, and conflict and death, but, but the, the the indescribable barbarity that, that so many people had been subject to by by countries that, that would have described themselves to be civilised. Um, produce this feeling that this can't ever happen again. We must not allow this ever to happen again. And so what we need is as robust as possible a basis for, for these, these ways in which societies are going to interact with each other and people are going to interact with each other so that there's, there's something you can point to to anyone to say there are there are limits beyond which we just should not go. I don't think the drafters of the Universal Declaration were under any illusion that they were going to somehow abolish conflict or abolish war or abolish disagreement by this, but they felt that the, what had happened was just so awful that, that there was the, the world had to do whatever it could to prevent sliding into that sort of behaviour again. And and whatever the whatever the universally agreed precepts were, however thin they were, however few they were, to have something that everybody could sign up to was really important. Now, as people will know, uh, you know, the, the Euro- UN declaration wasn't universally passed in the end, and not, not every country signed up to it. Um, and, of course, it, w- it was created in 1948, when, when many places of the world that are now independent nations were still colonies, and, and so that there was their colonial... Masters who were speaking on their behalf, uh, not, not they didn 't have independent voices, so there's so there 's always this contestation that that, you've, that you pointed to you know whose, whose rights are we talking about are they act, do they actually reflect the values of a particular subgroup of society or individuals or, or are, are they do they imply that the, the, the subject of rights is implicitly male or is implicitly white or whatever you know, that's, and those, those arguments will always be had and should be had because they help to um, to focus the down on what the truly fundamental shared concepts actually are, what things can we actually all agree on and share, and and use those to work towards fairer societies, more just societies, more more equal societies. Even though it can't ever it can't ever be perfect, and and there will always be be doubts and, and disagreements over it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned 1948, so it's some time ago that declaration was drafted. It was a landmark in terms of uh, human rights globally. Mm. Um, It was the first international agreement on the nature of human rights. It includes civil and political rights, Martin, like the, the right to life, liberty, free speech, and privacy. It also includes economic, social, and cultural rights, like the right to social security, health, and education. And that's something I want to get onto in a little bit, the split between those civil and political rights and economic, social, and cultural rights. But importantly, it's not a treaty. So it doesn't directly create legal obligations for countries. Mm. But that said, it was followed by two further documents, which are grouped together, With the Universal Declaration and they form what's called the International Bill of Rights. So these are the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And this is where things get a bit complicated because although the UK has ratified the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and that obliges it to respect human rights, to protect the enjoyment of rights and to fulfil individuals' rights, it hasn't actually signed up to what's known as the first operational protocol for that uh, covenant, which allows that the, and the protocol allows individuals to bring complaints to the UN Human right. Rights Committee. So if states have agreed to the protocol, the Human Rights Committee can consider complaints about human rights violations for individuals. And if the committee finds a violation, it asks the state in question to fix it. But since it's an optional protocol, states can choose whether to agree to it or not, and the UK hasn't signed up to that protocol. Which kind of makes things less effective, I suppose, in terms of the the, the reach of that convention.
0: Mm, yes. Yes, it does. And, and and I think it's really important, you know, when you know when we were talking earlier about the definition, you know, there are multiple things that human rights means when you use that term. And you've really got to be careful and clear when you're using that term. What exactly are you referring to? Because um there, as you said, there are a range of different instruments and, tra- and treaties and protocols, and they're all created by governments. They're all governments agreeing how they're going to treat each other and how they're going to treat their citizens. And different governments have, and different countries have different ideas about that and always will have. And so once you move away from the core, you know, very high-level, um, very kind of thin, really... Um, Declarations of the Universal Declaration, and you start to get into more detail about social and political life um, there's inevitably more um, more to be discussed there. There are more different options there are more different ideas about how things should go, and because it 's the state's parties who ultimately decide whether to sign up or not, um, then they can decide how much of those obligations they're going they 're going to take on but what what has ha- does happen and can happen is that those instruments provide. Um, templates for uh, for countries who are looking who are needing to refresh their legal system, especially we just mentioned you know previously colonized countries um, in, those international instruments have been really important to countries who are emerging into independence who are looking for ways of creating their own legal system their, you know, one that 's not been handed down from from the from from the imperial um, overlord um, and members of those citizens of those countries can look to those international instruments and say, well, here, you know, here's an example, an internationally agreed example of how it should be done. This is what we should have in, in this country. I think um, in more established legal systems like the British legal system, I think there's sometimes a tendency to think, well, anything that's, anything that's good and positive, we invented it anyway, hmm. so we've already got it, really. So we don't really need any of these other international instruments because we've, we've got a functioning democracy, because we've got a functioning judicial system, and there are ways of claiming um, what you're entitled to through, through those avenues. Um, but, you know, people can still make the same arguments here and do. People point to um, international treaties international human rights uh, instruments. That have been created since the Universal Declaration and, and use them as the basis for political campaigning to say, you know, things have moved on, the idea of human rights has moved on, and, and we should be responding to that in our own society.
1: Yeah, um, and that, that split between the economic, social and cultural rights and civil and political rights, that's not just at the UN level. So we're going to come on to speak about the European Convention on Human Rights and how mm. that shapes UK uh, human rights legislation. But at the European level, we have the European Convention on Human Rights, and we also have the European Social Charter. Uh, It's the European Convention on Human Rights, as I said, that forms the basis of UK human rights law, and it dates back to 1950. It's binding on all members of the Council of Europe, and it's uh, it's very important to point out that the Council of Europe is not the European Union. It's Mm. not a a branch of the European Union, so Brexit isn't going to have an impact on the application of the European Convention of Human Rights in the UK. So, the ECHR, European Convention on Human Rights, forms the basis of UK human rights law, and that's the 1998 Human Rights Act. And it sets out the fundamental rights and freedoms that everyone in the UK is entitled to, and it incorporates the rights set out in the ECHR into domestic British law. Maybe we'll run through a few of those, Martin. Right to life, Mm. the right to be free from torture and inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment, the right to be free from slavery and forced labour, the right to liberty and security of the person, the right to a fair trial, the right to be free from retrospective criminal law, one which is very pertinent to social work, the right to respect for private and family life, Mm -hmm. the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion, and so on and so on. There's a number more. It's important to recognize that the ECHR covers only civil and political rights. It doesn't address economic and social rights. So those are human rights, economic and social rights. But the European Court of Human Rights, which is based in Strasbourg, hears cases from individuals or groups alleging a state has breached one or more of the rights in the the European Convention of Human Rights. It doesn't cover the European Social Charter, which is monitored by the European Committee of Social Rights. And this is important. It's not just kind of technical and irrelevant. Mm. It's very important in relation to social work and some of the issues that Baswa campaigns on. Mm. I've heard concerns raised about this separation of civil and political rights and economic and social rights um, and how that's led to sort of relegation of economic and social rights as second class human rights. I listened to a really interesting discussion. It was between Professor Colin O'Connor from the London School of Economics and Sandra Friedman from Oxford University. And in that conversation, Professor Okanedi, he highlighted that we should be taking a much more integrated approach, stressing that economic and social rights are integrated into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from back in 1948. And he used he actually used an example of the freedom of thought, which is protected under the European Convention on Human Rights. Freedom of thought doesn't mean an awful lot if you're destitute and you're sleeping rough. You know, Freedom mm. of thought doesn't mean very much if you can't feed yourself. Mm. So there's clearly a role for social work in challenging those economic and social injustices. And these are economic injustices which, in theory, should be prevented by international treaties, including the European Social Charter. Unfortunately, they fall beyond the the reach of the European Court of Human Rights. So in terms of the the campaigning work that Baz was doing in relation to anti-austerity, in relation to homelessness, in relation to um, poverty... There's a direct relevance.
0: Yes, there is. Then there's there's probably more that we could be doing to 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 draw on on what's already there, what's already been created, and, and and feed those those issues into into the, the campaigning that that we do. I mean, again, it, it's when we're talking about human rights, what are we talking about? You know, the the, the convention rights impinge directly on social work practice because social workers very often, not always, but very often are, are employed by the state or working on behalf of the state. You know, local government is the state, same as national government. And so we have direct obligations to the people that we are working with to respect their convention rights. And we, so we need to know what they are. We need to know what they look like in practice situations. And we need, and we need to be aware of when we're um, encroaching on one of those rights and, and asking ourselves, do we... Should we be doing this? Are we do, do we have a justification for doing this? Is there evidence for us to do this? What's the minimal extent to which we can do it? How long do we need to do it for? And then those other um, economic and social rights that you mentioned—they they they are definitely relevant to social work as well. But at the moment, they're relevant in a different way because they don't have direct legal. Traction on, on what you're doing in a particular practice situation. Therefore, Basler and other civil society groups to look at and say, well, this this is the, a, the, a a motivating ideal. This is a the guiding ideal for the kind of society that we should be living in. It's already achieved a, a degree of international agreement, and we should be moving towards uh, these rights being enjoyed by as many citizens as possible, and not away from that. And I think there are times in our society where we where we are moving away from that. I mean that a less equal society is a society in which more, there are going to be more issues around people's rights being respected is certainly the position that Baswell would take. Um, so so we, we, we definitely need to, to be aware of that wider context and think about what, when is it relevant as a social work organisation to be drawing on those ideas as well as when is it relevant as a social worker in practice to be drawing on human rights instruments and conventions and knowing understanding what the differences are um, but also understanding what the opportunities might be to to bring in those ideas more into discussion
1: so martin i'm really keen to discuss the specifics of what aspects of human rights influence social work have you can you give us some worked examples of when uh, human rights are applied in the context of social work practice
0: yes um i suppose the the, the, the most significant example, the one that people will, will think of if you, you ask them what social workers do, um, they will think about protecting children and they will think about times when it might be necessary to, or thought necessary, to remove a child from his or her family for the, for the safety of that child, either temporarily or, in some cases, permanently. Um, there are major human rights issues at, at play in that, in that situation from the child's perspective um, if if the, the child is being subjected to, to, to abuse, then that, that's a potential infringement of, of their, their right to be free from inhuman and degrading treatment, potentially their right to life if, if the abuse is really serious. But removing a child from uh, his or her family obviously engages the parents' rights to, to family life, to, to be left alone to enjoy family life with their children, which is, which is what most people want to do and, and expect to be able to do. And it also engages the child's right. To family life to privacy and family life, um, because ordinarily people grow up with their parents, so thats that 's the way things normally go and the, the point there is is that the, the, the family is effectively seen as a, as, a, as a, a private sphere. I know that's a complex idea, and, and that, that, that has you know feminism had uh, talked a lot about this and the danger in the, the, the idea. But the way the human rights aspects work is that the family is a private sphere, and the state has to have a good enough reason to go into that sphere and start changing what's going on, changing who's there, changing what they can do. So those are the, that's the, the the single biggest example I would say, or the most important example of, of where. Human rights are relevant in, in social work, but there are, there are others. Uh, I mean, my particular field um, in in my own practice is is working with people who uh, aren't able to make their own decisions because of they, they have some uh, mental illness or an impairment of the brain or dementia or or a serious condition like that 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 means that that uh, decisions have to be made on their behalf to protect them to to act in their best interests. And the issue then often is, well, it's, op- it's often family life, Article 8, but often Article 5, right to liberty. Where, where should this person live? Um, should they live continue to live where they currently do? do? Do we think they should live somewhere else where we can take better care of them, protect them from harm, but it's maybe somewhere that they haven't chosen and maybe aren't that keen to go to? And so in all those cases, what are the arguments for doing it? Well, what's the justification for doing it? Um, in with Article Five, rights to liberty. There are some very specific justifications in the in the Convention that says, you know, these are the reasons. These are the situations in which the state might be entitled to interfere in this situation. Um, that's kind of the same with Article Eight as well. But also, there's a, there's a balancing exercise in Article Eight in that we we should all be um, enjoying some degree of of, of rights to privacy, rights to family life, rights to associate with whom we want to, communicate with whom we want to of course, that's, at the moment, um, under quite a lot of pressure because of COVID and because of the, mm-hmm. the government's response to COVID. So so as, so it, it can be, you know, these rights crop up in, in situations where, where where there's there's a significant degree of state intervention in families, um, in mental health legislation, obviously in criminal justice issues, immigration issues. But now, I think we're, we're all experiencing a degree of interference with, with our rights to, to liberty and our rights to... Association with whom we choose, which is what 8 is really about, and so we're all having to reflect on 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 that relevance and uh, to our own lives and and to you know, many people as we know in our society are not happy about the restrictions, are protesting against them, don't think they're needed, and so it's an, it's an opportunity for all of us, um, whatever our personal views are on on COVID and what the response should be, to think about the situations in which the state can get involved in your life and and what counts as a good enough reason for that to happen what counts as a proportionate reason for that to happen and then for those of us who are working in social services to then take that out into our practice and and you know i think you we've had that opportunity to reflect for ourselves on what it means for us and i hope that that would that would have some positive impact on on how we then think about what it means for other people when we might be the ones who are saying, "Well, actually, I think we do need to we do need to restrict your rights in this situation for these reasons."
1: In relation to mental capacity issues, and that's your that's the core of your work, Martin. If there weren't those qualifying aspects of the ECHR, would that mean you wouldn't be able to deprive somebody of their liberty if they were mentally unwell or if they had a dementia?
0: Yes, that's right. There's got to be there's the 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 phrase in the the convention is um protection of persons of unsound mind which is a very out of date phrase it's not a very nice phrase it's not what anybody would say these days um, but that's it's the language of the 1950s that's so that's that's what it's that's what it's that's the, the words that, the wording that's used so yes there there's got to be there's got to be some objective reason why this that you can point to that for this person is is unable to make decisions for a reason that I can provide evidence for, and I can, I can, I have to provide evidence to a, a certain standard before I can even think about restricting them, because because that's you know there, there's a limit to what I can do, and that's the whole point of the the article that 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 my ability as an agent of the state is is limited is is not me just doing what I think is right or doing what I think is needed. I've got to be able to think through you know, is the threshold met for me to get involved? If I then get involved, what do I do? How do I, do I have to do this? Are there other ways of doing it? Is, this ne- is it necessary at all? Even if I can do it, should I do it? If I can do it and I should do it, what's the minimal extent that I can interfere in this person's life and interfere with their choices? What's, what's a proportionate response? Because it's very easy to overprotect people. As well as to underprotect them. That obviously neglecting people, denying them uh, services puts their rights at risk, but also overprotecting them and trying to make too many choices for them is, is equally disrespectful of that person's rights. So, so thinking, thinking in the right human rights terms is about trying to get that balance right and be be in the right place with those decisions.
1: There's an issue that I'm currently working on. It's in relation to um, the restraint and seclusion of children and young people with special educational needs. So, lobbying in Mm -hmm. Northern Ireland. We are aware that the Department for Education doesn't have any guidance in in relation to this issue. And I know that in Scotland, they've moved ahead on this. And the Scottish government has produced Mm. guidance in relation to, it's non-statutory guidance in relation to restraint and seclusion of children and young people. I thought it was done because the Scottish government was super progressive um, and, and really willing to work <laughs> with stakeholders I found out in the week that it actually was largely prompted by a judicial review which was um, raised in mm. the Scottish courts and um, supported by the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission Scotland and um, I know the Scottish Children's mm. Commissioner were also involved in that and I think that what it came mm. down to um, I think it was Articles 3, 5 and 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights in relation to how it mm-hmm. was impacted in the context of restraint and seclusion through three being the right to be free from torture and inhumane or degrading treatment. Yeah. Five, the right to liberty and security of the person. And eight, well, that's the right to respect for private and family life. But I think there is a it, that covers bodily autonomy, as I understand as well. Mm. Martin, is that right?
0: That's, that's right. Yeah. 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 So, so refusing uh being able to refuse medical intervention is 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 about article 8 it's about being able to have the right to choose what goes in and out of you you know in 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 very crude terms you know what what you what what you're required to swallow or 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 have injected uh, that's 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 where article 8 comes in yes
1: so it's just interesting even just this week to have come across a really live um real example of how human rights law does influence um policy decisions made throughout the UK in my own mm. work um Yes in relation to the difference between human rights and law, is there a difference between human rights and law, certainly at least in terms of domestic law?
0: Yes, there is um, i mean the, the, the human rights in the, the European Convention are are fairly tightly described, uh, so there's, uh, there it 's possible for something to not meet the threshold for it to be a human rights issue, um, and they are about the relationship between the state and the individual so relationships between individuals or between individual companies or organizations uh there may not be any human rights issues there because it, because it's, because the state's not involved i mean obviously the state always has some involvement because the state provides the police force the state provides the court system so if those uh systems are not um are not functioning as they should be um, as they should do, then there are potential human rights issues there. Um, I mean, there's an example, topical example of that is the um, the inquest into the into the Hillsborough disaster. You know that that was um, that was about you know people who 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 were not in the care of the state when they died, but the police were involved, and the the police and then the coroner services were involved. And as people will know, the outcome of the first inquest was challenged, and Human rights arguments were put forward as to what you know what should have happened in the process that should have that that, that, that should have taken place, um, and in the end, as we know, that led to the the, the verdict being being overturned. So yes, there is a, there is a difference. I mean, there are human rights laws. There are human rights in law things that you can directly claim. You can you can go to a court and say this is against my human rights and I want I want justice. Um, but then there are there are other laws um, and other ways of looking at law that are not that are not directly based on human rights or where human rights are not relevant because, or not immediately relevant because it's about two individuals trying to settle a dispute. But then very quickly the state becomes involved because because they have to settle it somewhere. They they, they will report each other to the police or they will take each other to court. And, and once you've got a state body like that on the scene, then there's, there's, the likelihood of there being some human rights dimension to what's going on is going to increase significantly.
1: What about that issue then about care being provided by um, a non-state body, so care that's contracted out to a private organisation? I'm thinking of care homes, for example.
0: Mm. Yeah, this was a, a tricky example when when Human Rights Act first came in because there was some legislation, uh, some examples at the time, I think it was with the House of Lords was, was still in existence not the Supreme Court, where they... They were dealing with challenges to the care that were, was being provided by care homes, and the, uh, the the House of Lords said, "Well, care homes are private bodies; they're not public bodies. So this isn't a human rights issue. The fact that the local authority is paying for the care that that doesn't change that. You know, this is a, this is about a commercial organisation contracting with a private citizen for provision of a service. This is not a human rights issue." And as you can imagine, that decision was uh, greeted Mm -hmm. with a considerable amount of alarm and dismay. And the law has now changed. So in the Care Act, which is the, uh, for people who are not familiar with it, it's the the, the main piece of legislation in England regarding adult social care. There's a specific section in the Care Act that says that when a a care home is providing services under, under commission from a local authority or from the health service, they are a public body. They, they, they are covered by human rights legislation if they're acting in that capacity, which, of course, is now becoming topical again because yeah. of because of COVID, because of the, you know, the restrictions that, that many places, quite understandably, are in placing on visiting because of the risk of transmission. But we're now seeing clearly that there are challenges to people's well-being because of not having mm-hmm. had contact with their families for so long. And so there's a balancing exercise that, that has to be struck.
1: Are you aware of any cases that have been have been advanced on, on, on the basis of human rights? Yeah. Yes,
0: yes, we have. Um, we have a case, there's a, there's a case in court in England at the moment where, um, in, in a local authority near me actually, um, in, in Greater Manchester, uh, where somebody's gone to court to say, you know, this is an infringement of our rights, this is an infringement of our human rights, that we're not allowed to see each other, and that if you did a proper balancing exercise, which is what, you know, human rights is usually all about when it, in real terms that's what you need to do at some point if you did a proper balancing exercise this gentleman saying then the outcome would be that I would be able to visit my wife every day and l- help you look after her just like I've been doing for the last however long you know that's that's the argument that he's making.
1: And is it an article 8 argument Martin?
0: Yes that would be that would be article 8 yeah it's interesting that the 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 mechanism by which he's doing it is through the uh, the, the safeguards on liberty that we have in, in England, called deprivation liberty safeguards, so it's come forward as an Article Five issue. It's come forward as a, as a challenge to her being deprived of her liberty. But the issues that are now coming out in the case are Article Eight issues. So once the, once the case yeah. gets into court, the court has to look at everything. The court has to look yes. at all of these yes. all of these issues because the court itself is bound by the Human Rights Act. The court itself is a public authority, so it yes. it has to it has to respect these people's rights as well as in looking at how other people are doing it.
1: Do you have a view on which is the stronger argument, the Article 8 argument or the Article 5 argument? Ooh,
0: um, I'm going to cop out here. Okay, that's <laughs> no, fine. I I'm, I'm I'm, am I'm not, not, not too familiar with the details of the case. Um, and also, it, these situations do depend so much on their facts. And I think, I think that that's a really important point to, to make as well. That We're always talking about what's going on in this situation for this person? What's the impact on this person? Maybe the last time we were in this situation was with a different person and the impact on them was different. doesn't matter. We have to look at this person. And so it might well be that you could have a situation where you know you have two cases going on in courtrooms that are next to each other and l- presenting very similar arguments and the judge in one case might say well actually no it is n- you not being allowed to visit that is disproportionate that is an interference with your human right with 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 your human rights and the judge in the next court might say well actually no looking at the facts that i'm that i've got in front of me and the situation that everyone's describing to me i'm i'm i, I don't feel able to make this ruling because of, because it's a different situation and 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 the the balancing exercise could be different in that different situation
1: martin we discussed earlier on that there are various different international human rights treaties can you think of any examples where the rights of an individual conferred by one treaty conflict with the rights of another individual conferred by a different treaty
0: yes i i think that there are some examples of that um and one of them is uh is set out in the the baswa guide to to human rights and social work which which is available on the uh, the Basel website, and it, it concerns the the ways in which different international human rights instruments um, impact on on children and families, and, and how states work with with children and families. So there's a right in the the European Convention uh, to privacy and family life, um, the, and we mentioned earlier that you know there's issues there about pr- protecting children from harm, protecting children from inhuman and degrading treatment, but also respecting their rights to family life and respecting the parents. Rights to family life, um, but there's also another instrument that's relevant, which is the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, and the, the the emphasis really is different. It's not it's not that it says things that are directly contradicting the the, the European Convention, but but the em- the emphasis is different. It's 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 on a more holistic model um, of of protecting children, a more holistic conception of what child protection might mean um, that isn't really there in the the, the European Convention in quite so many words, although it's possible to interpret the the Convention in that way. Um, So there there are different ideas about how how the two things should work together. Um, In England and Wales, the Children Act in 1989 was supposed to be based on the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. It was supposed to bring those ideas into uh, English law, although it wasn't a direct incorporation of the Convention into English law. So the assumption there was that it could work alongside the European Convention, which we already had. Um, we were bringing legislation in that, that was felt not to be in contradiction to the European Convention, and, and it, it would be possible to, to, to combine the insights from all of these pieces of, of, of legislation and make them work together. And that's not a view that's, that's universally shared. Um, there are, you know, the, the emphases in the, in, the, uh, in the two documents are different. Um, and this brings up a, an important point that um, there's something called a margin of appreciation that states have uh, when when they're applying human rights uh, instruments, because things are so fact sensitive. When you're trying to work out what's what is the human rights the best human rights approach in a particular situation, there will always be differences of opinion. There will always be differences of how best we can use public resources, um, and so. That there's this understanding that, that states you know within limits have are able to make their own choices are able to interpret these things for them for themselves now obviously that's a very contentious area um and one person's uh justifiable margin of appreciation is another person's you know dereliction of responsibility and and failure to abide by by uh by the human rights concepts. The other relevant issue here is um something again we've not mentioned yet, which is the idea of positive duties. Uh, under human rights legislation that it's not simply about trying to protect people and having mechanisms in place if people are harmed so that they can make a claim and things can be fixed although obviously that's very important but the idea that that um, governments should be following the spirit of these documents as well as their letters and looking at ways of promoting rights and freedoms for for all of their citizens to the extent that they can in the circumstances that they're in and again that's going to be contested you know uh, one One set of opinion in society will say, "Well, we're already doing everything that we can, and other people will say, "Well we're not doing anywhere near enough and and so then politics happens in the middle, and people can then use those um those examples or those human rights conventions as ways of providing arguments and and ideas to to push those those political debates forward.
1: And that's interesting, Martin, because it just sparked me to think again of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. So we spoke earlier about the division there between civil and political rights and economic, social and cultural Mm. rights. And Article 25, this is when the declaration gets into the economic, social and cultural rights. Article 25 reads that everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family. Forgive all the his's and the hymns. This is obviously a reflection mm-hmm. of the time it yes. was written. Including food, clothing, yes. housing and medical care and necessary social services. And the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. And I think this is an interesting one mm-hmm. because... If the UN um, Universal Declaration on Human Rights, it's not, um, it doesn't bind the UK because it's not actually an international treaty. When you think of the impacts, for example, that Universal Credit is having on families, we know there's a there's a stat I've actually cited in the last podcast when we made about spending review. It's a stat from the Child Poverty Action Group, mm-hmm. CPAG. This is a stat which precedes, predates the COVID-19 pandemic, mm. but they, they um, estimate that, by the time Universal Credit is fully rolled out, um, it will have pushed an additional 300,000 children in the UK into poverty. And yeah. I always state that it's not a total of 300,000, it's a further 300,000 okay. children into poverty. It's just a its a stat that I just think is mind-blowing. You could argue on the basis that the UK is then failing in, in uh, meeting the requirements of Article 25, certainly in a positive sense, because... It wouldn't appear that everybody does actually have a right to standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of Mm. himself and his family if you were to think of how our social security system actually works out Mm. in reality. Um, Particularly in relation to that issue, I think, where children, it's actually the children that are being penalised. The two-child limit on universal credit means a family that have a third child, fourth child, fifth child, those kids can't access the child element, or sorry, the family can't access the child element of universal credit for those children unless the child was conceived and this is abominable, mm. um, as a result of rape, mm. um, or mm. because of a multiple birth, or if they were adopted, and I would see that as a failure um, to meet the requirements of that article of the Universal uh, Declaration on Human Rights. Certainly, in terms of a positive sense, yeah. Any views on that?
0: Yeah, well, I think I think you're I think you're right. I think it is it is very vulnerable to challenge when you when you look at when you bear in mind that that that, that human rights. Legislation isn't just about specifying procedures for, for fixing things. It's, it's supposed to be about moving standards forward and developing people's access to rights and freedoms in a kind of continuous way. Um, so the you know the, the the legalistic response would be to say, well, what what the uh, what the human rights conventions actually commit us to having in place is uh, processes for assessing need and and decision-making mechanisms that are transparent and and. And we've got those, you know, that's what, the, that's what the response would be. We've got that, so we do help the people who need it. Um, but public resources are limited and, you know, we, we need to make sure that we focus the, res- the resources on people who really do need it. And we get to decide who those people are because we're allowed to do that. So there's a kind of legalistic letter of the law way of defending it from a from a human rights point of view. But I think you put your finger on something really important, that, that if you look at it from the positive duty side of things, you, you say, well, are we... What are we doing to promote the development of a society in which no child has to undergo this, no child experiences this? And the answer to that is, is not enough. <laughs> you know, that, that, so sure. there, so there's so there's uh, so in one sense, one way you can defend it, you know, you could say, well, actually, no, we can give you a per- perfectly, you know, worked up answer for, for what we're doing um, that, that 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 is fully compliant with every piece of human rights uh, legislation you can show us. But in another sense is, well, you kind of, you kind of miss the point, really, that, that this, is, this isn't just about that legalistic, defensive, negative um, approach that we have to have that. There's a positive sense, or there should be a positive sense to this as well, where we should be trying to, um, to develop everyone's ability to access these fundamental rights and freedoms. And, and we're not happy with what you're doing on that front. And we're, go- you know, we're going to continue to call you out. We're going to continue to organise campaigns against austerity and, and, and child poverty and, and, and the, is- the issues. Because we see, as social workers, we see the connection between all of these things. We, we're not looking at it just from that negative point of view or just from that positive point of view. We, sometimes one or the other comes to the fore, depending on exactly what situation we're in. But as social workers, we, we see... The whole picture, or we try to, or we 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 certainly are committed to doing that, and seeing the the, the person in that situation and and the the impact of the situation on the person, and and how what uh, may seem or may be said by by some people to be be because of that person is in a certain situation or has a certain condition or has done certain things, and as social workers, we want to say, well, no, it's not as simple as that. You know, there's 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 this whole society dimension there 's this whole issue of, of discrimination and, and prejudice and and just ignoring people in, in certain situations that that we are we are going to challenge that you know we are limited in what we can do on any given day because of the resources that we have and the, the rules and regulations that we, we can bring to bear on a situation but but in terms of our our ethics, um, you know we have a commitment to developing those I- developing those ideas and helping people um, live the most full, most rich life that they can. So we're going to keep campaigning and and adding our voices towards efforts to do that.
1: And in relation to ethics, which you just mentioned, Baswa's Code of Ethics, I believe, is is being refreshed. Isn't that correct?
0: Yes, that's right. um, We're a member of the International Federation of Social Work. Um, We are the UK representative for the International Federation of Social Work. So our Code of Ethics uh, tracks theirs. It's not you know, it does. It's not the same. Doesn't have to be the same word for word, but it's got to track theirs. And they've recently um, they've recently refreshed theirs. They, they, they've it just doesn't added anything of they've added any new principles or taken anything significant out. It's just to refresh the language and 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 make it make it work better for for a for a twenty first century uh, profession. So we're we're looking we're looking at that at the moment, um, but it's something that we need to keep under continuous review because. You know, um, ideas move on, ethical principles develop. Um the scope of human rights we mentioned earlier is, is it, it develops all the time. Um when the um when the in Universal Declaration was promulgated, um, it was highly debatable whether certain groups of people were really seen as coming within its scope. You know, women in many parts of the world, people of colour in many parts of the world. Those arguments and battles have been fought and, and there's there's now at least an acknowledgement that, you know, people, you know, human does really mean human. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's not doesn't mean that it's respected everywhere, but 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 there's at least a, a, some notional sign up across the world that that you know that really does really mean everyone. And now people, are, of course, are talking about whether we should extend the concept even further. Should the, the environment have rights in some sense? Does, should, is that the way we should look at the, the challenges of climate change? And, well, and so inter-
1: intergenerational rights I've, I've heard discussed. Yeah. yeah so yeah. the decisions that we make today impacting elsewhere. And just 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 um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the universal declaration of human rights that was chaired that process was chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt so she was that's, no longer the first lady that's she had been guess. yeah so and i'm just i'm going to just refresh myself by pulling up the preamble cuz i don't want to quote anything wrong so mm-hmm. um it recognizes the inherent dignity and uh, and the the inalienable i'm really struggling mm. with that today <laughs> inalienable rights of all members of the human family that was 1948 Mm. That was um, well before the Civil Rights um, Act in America, mm. you know. Yeah. So you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dimension. You know, it's I suppose progressive in the fact that it, this this process was being chaired by a woman. You know, yep. um, uh, 1948. But yes, certainly a, a woman from a country that still had massive civil rights um, violations. I suppose you could say, yeah, um, and the subjugation of a huge element of its population. So. This is, and just on that, I suppose then, so if you kind of consider human rights as, as a, a um, progressing, you know, advancing, yeah. advancing agenda, the issue of trans rights, Martin, is, isn't going to become less of an issue in the coming years. Is that something that Baswa has given any consideration to?
0: Um, yes, we, we uh, at our recent um, annual general meeting, a motion was passed um, asking Baswa to uh, develop uh, resources for social workers to help, to help social workers in practice understand the the multiple dimensions of of, of this question of people who are experiencing these issues, people who um, are wanting to to move away from an identity that they've they've been assigned by other people and and adopting an identity for themselves. Um, And, you know, we're well aware that, that, you know, at least in in some uh, quarters that this is raising concerns, that there are challenges to this, that there, there are anxieties about this. Um, and that we will be looking at that and developing resources for for our practitioners that that, that, that are firmly rooted in in uh, human rights concepts but will help um, our members principally to to respond to to situations and to support people who find themselves caught up in a, in a question like this um, that work is is yet to begin we've you know the motion was passed in september, so we we 've yet to start work on it but it 's going to be Yes, quite something. Something quite significant for us, I think, in the in the next in the next couple of years.
1: Thanks, Martin. And I was thinking about procedures in terms of when social workers are actually there on the day, you know, engaging with service users. How do social workers balance what are sometimes competing considerations about needs and risks and human rights when they're making judgments?
0: Yes, it's a it's it's a really big challenge, um, especially in the situations that social workers work in, where we're often talking about a significant degree of risk and a significant level of anxiety amongst people about what will happen. Um, so doing going through these kinds of exercises, these balancing exercises under under pressure, is, is, is really difficult. Um, but I personally think that, that having a, an idea of, of the kind of human rights perspective on how to do this will help people do it. It helps give you a framework... For looking at a situation that you can you can share with other people, you can say this is this is coming from a human rights perspective, which is how I have to look at it, and it will help everyone try and weigh things up as best they can after discussion, after honest and open sharing of information and perspectives. And so the way the way I think of it, and, you know, based on my understanding of 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 of, of, of how to apply these concepts is. The, the first the first question is legitimacy. Should should you be doing it at all? You know, have you got a reason for doing it? Have you got a legal authority to do it? Are you are you following the law? Are you following your organization's policy? Are you are you trying to bring somebody something that you know they're entitled to? You know, what, what's the reason? It, what's the purpose for it? What enables you to do it? What means you? Is there something that means that you have to do it? Is there something that means that you can do it? Are you able to articulate that? Are you able to say this is what I'm working with in this situation? It's, it's the Care Act. It's the Children Act. It's whatever you know, whatever it is. To have that, to have that clarity and be able to make it clear to other people. And then if you you think that um, you need, do need to interfere in somebody's rights in some way, you need to you restrict contact to their child. You 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 think you need to admit them to a psychiatric ward or, or whatever it may be. Well, why do I have to do that? You know why, what what why will that be better than what will otherwise happen? What harm will I be preventing if I do that? Can I clearly identify w- what the harms will be if I don't do this? Um, and then the next question is, is, is it proportionate? You know, I've got to balance the benefits and risks of what I'm going to do, or what I'm thinking of doing, and I have to bear in mind that, OK, I'm dealing with a situation where there's, there are risks of harm, where if I don't intervene, I think somebody will be harmed. But am I going to harm them by what I'm going to do? You know, if I remove the child from the parents, then everybody's going to be very, very distressed by that. Um, if I say to this individual, right, I'm sorry, you are gonna have to come to this mental health ward, they're gonna be very upset and distressed, or they're often upset and distressed by that. And that could have a, a significant impact on their on their health and well-being. So I've got which could, in some circumstances, be actually be worse than if I just stepped back and said, no, let's just see what happens. Mm-hmm. So, so you've always got to acknowledge that, that, you know, you're trying to act to protect people, you're acting in somebody's best interest, you're acting to promote a child's welfare, or you're acting in the best interests of somebody with a serious mental health problem or somebody with dementia. But you've always got to acknowledge that, you know, the impact of what you're going to do, what, what that's gonna be on that person and acknowledge that And then weigh it up. And and the way to weigh it up is, is as best you can, understand where that person is coming from themselves, what's their perspective, what matters to them, what's important to them, what do they want. Can you help them get what they want? Even if it's not today, can we plan towards it? Can we move towards this in a week's time or a month's time? And in the meantime, we might have to do something else, something else that this person's not so happy with. And um, So there's no there's no kind of cookbook for this, you know, the, 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 because it's about making judgments. It's about looking at the situation. It's about responding as a human being as well as a professional, you know, with with your feelings as well as with your intellect. Um, but the the ideas of legitimacy, proportionality, necessity, transparency, openness, and and listening to the person, you know, if you really commit yourself to doing that, and commit yourself to listening to all the perspectives that there are in a s- situation around that making the best judgment that you can being willing to admit that you've got it wrong being opening yourself to review to 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 reconsideration when when things have developed or when further information becomes available then you will be taking a human rights perspective on the situation i think and you'll be you'll be doing the best that you can because we we're at the end of the day we're all human we're all limited in what we can understand what we can appreciate what we can foresee um and we don't. We're not always going to get it right, even if even if we try our hardest. But but if you if you follow those those principles, if you really take them to heart and, and embed them in your practice, then then you will be doing the best that you can. And the final
1: thing I wanted to ask you, Martin, was about social workers, human rights as employees. Is that a factor which mm. comes into play?
0: Absolutely, yes. If you're you know if you're working for uh, a public authority or you come into contact with a public authority um, in your your either because of your employment or your personal life, then yes, you, you will have rights in that situation. Um, obviously, the, the one one aspect of human rights approaches that we've not spoken about so much, but it's really important, especially in the work context, is, is discrimination. Um, you know, discriminating against people um, because of certain aspects of, of who they are as people. Um, Either that's illegal, and the, and it's on, it's illegal because it's against people's rights. It's you know, you, your right to be free from discrimination and your in, enjoyment of all the other rights and freedoms that, that you have. So in um, in the UK, that's that's in, in embodied in in various uh, equalities legislation, and, and that there are there are uh, reasons that that it's unlawful to make decisions on based on, on on people about those particular characteristics they might have of their age or their their sex or any any physical impairment they might have and, and so on. So
1: And and Martin, are those are those pieces of equalities legislation are they informed by the ECHR? They, 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 fl- they flow
0: from it ultimately. You know they they, they they it's ultimately the justification for it is is a human rights justification. So yes, so so they might not um, people might think of them in separate terms. They might 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 think of equalities issues as might not see them as human rights issues, but they surely are, um, because because people do have that right to be free from discrimination when when enjoying their rights and freedoms. So that's the that's that's the source of them ultimately. So yes, yeah, so so as social workers, as employees, we we have human rights, and and, and I'm sure um, there will uh, times where we feel our rights are not being respected. Um, and so it's important to know what your rights are. And, and if you, you, you want to challenge what's happening, that you know how to do that. And as I've said previously, when talking about COVID, when you, you, you are in a situation like that, there's an opportunity there to reflect on what it feels like to, do you feel you're not being respected? Do you feel you're not being listened to? And then think about, well, what relevance will this have for, for, for what I'm doing in my work? And, and how can it help me better to listen to people and better to respect people if I've had that experience of, of not being respected myself because respect is ultimately what it is really all about. That's really, if you, want, if you want one word to describe human rights, that's the word.
1: And I think that's a really fantastic point to wrap up, Martin. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Been... Thank you, Andy. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's, it's been tremendous. <laughs> all the best. Thanks very much. Take care.